Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. We're going to continue our sermon series in John, so we'll be in John chapter 18 this morning. We uh, Last week we looked at this moment of Jesus's, uh, or Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's a couple of things that I really do want to highlight before we press forward. We're really going to re-hit some themes that we made reference to last week, but guys, it's been such a long time since we started this week, because really over the last five, six months, we've been in a week. We've been walking through this passion narrative that started a couple of months ago, but in reality, it's really only been a couple of days. And so just to kind of give a a moment or perhaps a a reintroduction to what we've walked through. In John chapter 12, Jesus, after raising Lazarus from the dead, enters into Jerusalem. And I want you to hear the proclamation of the people as he enters into Jerusalem. Because we think about this, this grand triumphal entry. And it's important for us to have this in our minds as we press forward and look at this conversation that Jesus will have with Pilate, but also the conversation that Jesus will have with the high priests, which literally using that in the plural is an indication of corruption. But let's just look at what John chapter 12 has to say to us. John chapter 12, as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, walking into Passion Week, this is the proclamation that he is met with by the people. This is John chapter 12 and verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is where the week began. The week began with the people of Israel coming out to meet Christ, proclaiming the King of Israel has come. We've walked through this narrative. We've seen that men have betrayed him. We've seen Judas go out and betray him for 30 pieces of silver. We've seen even his most perhaps trusted disciple, Peter, deny him three times. And the conversations that we're about to see unfold are vitally important to our understanding. I think they're important to our understanding of what carnal men do with God, first and foremost. We've seen this this language of what it means to be a God-hater. And I think genuinely what we see unfold is an illustration of that, a very clear indication of this is what men do with God in the most most, uh, clear form and fashion. But really what I want to dive into this morning is the concept of Jesus' priestly ministry along with the kingly ministry of our Lord. And I know we've hit this theme multiple times. As a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago we walked through Psalm chapter 110. We really see these two things collide rather dramatically. Uh, uh, David is working through his understanding of his own king. When in, in Psalm 110.1 it says, The Lord says to my Lord. And right in the center of this psalm, meditating upon the kingly ministry of our Lord is this moment that says, but you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What we find in this particular uh, section of scripture is where we see the priestly ministry of our Lord and the kingly ministry of our Lord meet and meet rather dramatically. 
And so a couple of things that I would like to highlight to you before we dive in. First, let me give you the sermon in a sentence. The sermon in a sentence is this. This is where these two things, the priestly ministry of our Lord, the kingly ministry of our Lord, collide. Jesus is the king who secures his kingdom by his priestly ministry. Let me read that to you again. Jesus is the king who secures his, king, his kingdom by his priestly ministry. It is unlike any other king. And so with that being said, let's turn to the reading of the scriptures this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be bouncing around just a little bit, but we'll start in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. Then we'll look at 19 through 24, and then we're going to read a rather lofty or a rather lengthy passage from 28 to, the, uh, to 38. So uh, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Hear the word of the Lord. John chapter 18, starting in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Jump up to verse 19. The high priest then questioned, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jump down to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nations and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Let's pray together. Father, we come looking into this discourse Lord, where there are false priests examining your priesthood, where there is a king that, or a, a governor who you set up as the true king of all creation, you give him breath. Lord, remind us as we look into this passage that you are supreme. In every category, you are supreme. You are the king of kings, you are the Lord of lords, you are the true and better high priest. Remind us of these things. Reveal how they meet and the glories that we have because they do. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
to really start this passage off, the first thing that we have to do is really understand the situation, the, the political climate, if you will, in Jerusalem at the time. Um, I said, as we were reading this, the, the language of the high priests, that there were two at the time. That in and of itself is a clear corruption of what the scriptures actually teach in regard to the priestly ministry of the Levites. There was only one to be existing at a time, and his ministry would be for the entirety of his life. As a matter of fact, his ministry would not cease until he died, and then it would pass on to another one who would be a son of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. So really what you see happen here is this concept of two priests is rather foreign. And I just want you to kind of grasp, if you will, the, the idea as you were a Jew being raised, you see and you understand perhaps the scriptures and you know with rather clear certainty that there should be only one high priest. What does two high priests communicate to you? The fact that there is both Annas and Caiaphas, I think, very clearly indicates the fact that this priesthood that is had is not a real priesthood at all. As a matter of fact, it's rather corrupt. It has become something that is rather politically charged. No longer is it for the purpose of doing the ministry that the Lord has set out for the priest. Instead, it has been corrupted by power, by a desire to take a step up, by, by a desire to be a bit more powerful. And really, more than anything else, it was a position that was given by Rome to one who perhaps would not stir much controversy inside the people of Israel at the time. Because what they really didn't want to have is some type of, uh, of, of revolution occurring. Because they had seen this occur. As a matter of fact, if we were to look back into some historical, uh, into some historical um, resources, we'd find that there had been revolutions that had come about, but they were always squashed. And so essentially what Rome decides to do is says, well, we'll set our own priests there. Certainly we'll keep into the sum of the kind of realm of customs that the Israelites under, uh, observe. But more than anything else, we want to know that we have some position of power. And so Jesus is brought before this corrupt priest, one who is really not a priest at all because he had been deposed. He had been removed because they wanted someone else. They bring Caiaphas in, and then Caiaphas is the high priest that will ultimately serve in that role really laughably one last time. But Annas was probably still seen as the high priest to many. As there were multiple factions probably being formed, Annas would be considered the high priest by those who said there could only be one living priest at a time. Annas certainly has that right because he was first. But let's consider what Annas' ministry actually, uh, actually observed. When we have talked, and we've talked about this multiple times, is the Day of Atonement, this glorious day in the life of Israel. This is found in Leviticus chapter 17, this concept of this day, this day when all of Israel would gather that there would be a sacrifice made first for the priest. The priest would go in, he'd make atonement for his own sin because he can't represent Israel with sin already corrupting himself. He had to make a sacrifice first before he could represent the people of Israel. Annas would have done this, not once, not twice, but multiple times. Same thing with Caiaphas. They would have observed these things. They would have seen this blood being shed on their behalf. They would have known that this blood was for them. This is what the teaching of the Old Testament very clearly communicates. And then they would go in and they would make atonement with a lamb, and a very specific lamb at that, one without blemish spot or any such thing. And they would spend their entire evening before Passover, before this day of atonement occurred, and they would inspect this lamb. And they would do so with great thoroughness. They would make sure that it actually was a lamb without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But not only would they inspect the lamb, but they themselves would be inspected. Because not only did the lamb have to be inspected, the priest had to be inspected well. They had to make sure that the priest actually was prepared to enter into this holy place. And if he wasn't, the odds of him walking out alive were slim to none. Because he was about to walk into the presence of God. And friends, walking into the presence of God apart from the clear commands that he's given on how we are to enter into his presence is a very fearful thing. So they'd be inspected. Annas has observed this 
over and over and over again. He has seen the Day of Atonement. But really what we see unfolding here in verses 19 through 24 is Annas inspecting the true Lamb of God. John's proclamation when he lays eyes on Christ for the first time is what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here you have this corrupt system aiming to find fault. Aiming to find fault. Friends, we don't look at the trial of Jesus assuming that it was meant to be a fair trial. We look at it understanding that the individuals who are trying him, their only goal is to see him be put to death. And so the high priest then is looking at him, trying to find some type of fault. And do you know what Annas actually does find? Nothing. He finds that Christ is without fault altogether. If Annas the high priest was then expecting the Lamb of God who was able to take away the sin of the world, despite his, and we must, we genuinely must understand that Annas probably had a deep understanding of the law. And as he's looking at Christ, does he find a single fault? Does he find anything, any blot, stain, or blemish? And the answer is no. He finds no stain. He finds nothing that would rule him out. He finds no reason to condemn him. There is no sin on him. There is no, there is no disobedience to the law. Last week I said that if Jesus is tried by the law, he will always be found innocent, no righteous. Friends, when Jesus is tried by the law, the law does what it was always meant to be. It proclaims that he is the one that has been promised. And Annas is examining him and finds this one is without fault. And you see it give way. Because Jesus, he's examined, they're inspecting him, they find nothing. And yet you still see the motives here. Because you see one laughably look at Jesus and say, how dare you speak to the high priest that way and strike him. Friends, this is perhaps the most humorous language used. His priestly ministry is done. Annas has not only been deposed But the priestly ministry of the Levites is coming to a close. The true and better priest has come. The true and better lamb has come. But not only do we see Jesus being tried by Annas, one high priest, instead we also see him being tried by another. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, same, it's, it's a parallel account you have in the courtyard here, very likely Annas. And we've walked through this last week. You have Annas being interrogating Jesus. You have Peter over here by the fire warming himself and denying his Lord all the while. Jesus is being found to be perfectly faithful, perfectly obedient to the law, not only in the do not do's, but in the do's as well. He is obedient to both the, uh, both the clear prohibitions and the commands, perfectly so. And then you see this progress forward. And so in verse 57 and following, we see the Lord Jesus being interrogated by Caiaphas. So Annas has examined him. He then has moved on to Caiaphas. And it says this in verse 57 and following. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole councils were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. What is most laughable about this is they knew they could not find fault. There was no way possible for them to condemn Christ. It almost cast our eyes back to the person of Daniel. Daniel being condemned and thrown in the lion's den. It is a, it is a farce. It is a fake trial altogether. They have to find some means of introducing fault because Daniel had no means of being condemned. In the exact same way, friends, what we have is a Christ who has no fault altogether. The only thing that can be presented is something that is a lie, something that is wrong, something that is a false, uh, a false testimony.
So verse 59, we're seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Listen to verse 60. They found none. Friends, Jesus is the single most examined Lamb of God that has ever been presented. For decades, for centuries, there had been a lamb that had been inspected. Friends, every lamb has fault. They could have inspected it. They can find fault. They can find the most perfect lamb that exists on this planet, and it would still possess some frailty. Friends, the true lamb of God has no fault. The true lamb of God has no sin. They found none. Not inspected by one high priest, but two. And it goes on to say, They then introduce all the more false testimony, and it says in verse 61, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Now listen to verse 63, But Jesus remained silent. All of these things are beginning to come to a head. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says this. Now, Isaiah 53 is one of perhaps the most clear prophetic chapters in all of Scripture that indicates not only the person of Christ, but even the trials that he would undergo and the crucifixion that he would endure. But Isaiah 53, 7 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Friends, if there was a moment just consider this. We, always, we look at Christ here and we see him meek and mild, but I think we do well to understand the definition of meekness rightly. It is not as though he could not give an adequate defense. It is not as though he could not clearly indicate to everyone in the room that he was exactly who he says he was. As a matter of fact, he could, with a demonstration of power, conquer every one of them. In just the previous section, we saw Jesus proclaim that he is God. I am he, and everyone falls to their knees. Where is that now? It's silenced by one thing, by Jesus' delight and obedience to the Father. This was prophetic. As a matter of fact, we'll see him utter things from the cross, in particular, my favorite, uh, that Jesus thirst. And it says even in a parenthetical statement, he did this to fulfill the scriptures. Friends, the reason Jesus stood silent is to fulfill the scriptures. The reason he stood here knowing that this would ultimately lead to his crucifixion is because his delight was in obedience to God that would ultimately bring about, bring about the salvation of all those who were his. And so we see him be tried. We see ultimately that there are individuals, that these two priests, Caiaphas and Annas, are examining him. And ultimately they find no fault. And then they clearly identify him as the Messiah, which I think brings to a head John's introduction. I'm convinced that John's introduction in chapter 1 runs throughout the entirety of the book. And here is the pinnacle of John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Friends, the highest in the land, the high priests are examining him and say, get him out. Notice the language. Listen to how Caiaphas responds to Jesus' answer. Listen to verse, uh, this is still Matthew chapter 26, verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now we oftentimes water down this statement, but essentially what Jesus is saying is, it is as you say. I am indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. And he goes on to say, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. 
friends, this is the charge for which Jesus was crucified, blasphemy. Now let's just consider this for a moment. First, there is this running theme that I find in those who would look to Christ and say that he is not the Messiah. Friends, if Jesus is not the Messiah and if he never claimed to be the Messiah, then the New Testament makes no sense at all. There's no reason for Christ to have been crucified. They did not crucify him because he broke the law. They could find no fault. They did not crucify him because he said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They crucified him because he claimed explicitly to be the son of God. They crucified him because he claimed exclusively to be the Christ, the Messiah. He is not one of many. He is the only begotten. And when we see this this claim, Caiaphas can't do anything else but condemn him as a blasphemer. Why? Not because he is looking out for the purity of the the Jewish system, but because he has always been a God-hater. And when Christ, the perfect revelation of the Father, comes and he sees him, there is only one response. Away with him. Blasphemy. This is the same man that inspected time and time again the sacrifices for the Day of Atonement. Friends, the extent of this suppression is really staggering. He looks in the face of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and says, not him. Not him. Now, all of that to be said, I said that this was, a, this was a, an evening. All of this occurs from sundown to sunup. Jesus is being inspected from the time the sun goes down to the time the sun comes up. He's delivered over to Pilate. What is occurring during that evening? Well, it was a common Jewish practice that the high priest who would be making a sacrifice for the following day of atonement would stay up the entire night to be questioned. He would stay up the entire night to be examined to make sure that he was prepared for the task. And not only that, as the high priest was undergoing inspection, so was the lamb that would be slain. Friends, our Lord, even in the tradition of the day, makes clear that he is the high priest who will be making atonement the next day. But not only that he will be making atonement, but he will be the lamb that will be the atonement. We have here the priest of God and the lamb of God meet perfectly. He is the one who makes sacrifices, not with the blood of goats and bulls, but with his own blood. He sheds his own blood. And this is the language of Hebrews. It's so lovely. It says, thus securing an eternal redemption. The language is important, securing an eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls couldn't do it. Friends, Caiaphas and Annas were so preoccupied with making sure that the spotless, the true spotless lamb of God was going to be condemned the next day that they had forgotten their task altogether. This is very clearly the providence of God. No lamb that day, only the true lamb of God that John identified much earlier. So we see this moment that Jesus is the spotless lamb of God that would make atonement for sin and himself be the atonement. Now, how does that connect with the idea of the kingship that we see mentioned as Pilate interviews him? All of this, by the way, is just moments away from each other. We're not talking about massive disconnects here. We're talking about really an evening making its way as Jesus is being questioned to be the priest and the lamb and then leading into this moment where he's brought before Pilate. All of this is happening rather concisely. And so how does this connect to one another? So let's just look at what uh, verse 28 says, because here we go from him being priest and then looking at his kingdom. So ultimately, the priests bring Jesus before Pilate. Now, this is perhaps the most laughable thing that clearly indicates the state of their hearts. And we would do well to perhaps make a moment of application here. Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house to Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters 
so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. How laughable. And it is laughable. But friends, do, we, we do well to pause here a moment. We do well to just take the moment to consider that it is very, very possible to examine and to obey clear ordinances of God all the while being unclean. And here we see them demonstrate that rather clearly. We do well to pause here and think and pray, Lord, not I, please. Because it's by his grace that he changes the heart. Friends, the idea of a religious-based righteousness is not alien to the human race. Instead, I think it's our default. What we see them doing is living in the default. We see them living in the concept of I can make myself clean and I'm gonna stay away from everything that would make me then unclean. All the while being corrupt in heart, not knowing that it is their heart that spews forth all types of wickedness. And so they bring the perfect spotless lamb of God to the governor, refuse to go in because they do not want to be defiled. And they hand him to to Pilate, verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, who would not have delivered him over to you? What charge did they bring? They brought nothing. They literally brought nothing. Pilate looks back at them and says, why don't you try them according to your law? And then, he, then they make this, this ridiculous statement that, they don't, that, that they're not permitted to kill. Friends, they have done it over and over again. We see this rather clearly. As a matter of fact, we see them take up stones to stone Christ earlier on. They won't do it now because they're trying to keep their hands a bit clean so that they can go and observe Passover, so that they can go and observe the Day of Atonement. All the while, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, that if their hearts were right with Him, that did have a love and affection for the God that they say they served, would look to Jesus and say, there's the Lamb. And they miss it altogether because their hearts are indeed corrupt. They have no charge to be brought against him. But there is a secondary thing that we must note here. Jesus has been tried according to the Jewish law. He has been found not just faultless, but righteous, perfect in every way. But the Jews know that there is also no charge in the Roman Empire that can be brought against him. He is totally faultless. He has been tried by every court possible and still found to be perfectly clean. So they bring him no charge at all. They simply say, he's done evil. Pilate says, what evil? And they say, uh. I mean, I don't know how to describe this any more thoroughly. It's a total farce. They do not grasp. They cannot bring any real charge. And friends, the reason this is so important, the reason this is, we have to drive this thought home, because friends, if there was fault, then there is no hope for us. If Christ was not the perfect spotless lamb of God, if he was not without sin, stain, or any such thing, then friends, we are altogether hopeless. He must be without fault because if he were not, he could not make atonement for sin. Someone would have to make atonement for him first. The whole concept of the day of atonement sacrifice, the first thing it indicates, the very first thing it proclaims is the infirmity and the weakness of the priesthood. They had to make their own sacrifice. Jesus is the better priest because he makes no sacrifice for he needs none. He is perfect and spotless in every way. And thus he is brought before Pilate and said, what charge do you have? And the answer is nothing. We have nothing, nothing to condemn him with. Now this should indicate to us the divine providence of God. How is it then that he dies on a cross? Because he was crucified by wicked men according to the perfect foreknowledge and predestination of the Father. It is by His grace that Christ will be crucified. 
and only by his grace. So what do we see? How does this kingdom come about? Look at verse 33. Pilate walks back into his home. He's looking out. He's considering the things that have occurred. And he says, let me speak to this man named Jesus. So in verse 33, it says, are you the king of the Jews? This is the one question he asked. Can I be honest with you? I'm convinced that Pilate thought yes. I'm convinced that Pilate knew that the man he was looking at was in actuality the king of the Jews. And it had already made it to his door. Because remember, we've, we're a couple of days removed from the triumphal entry. The proclamation had already gone out. The king of Israel has come into Jerusalem. And here we stand in, in Pilate looking at Jesus and say, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus will affirm this in a moment, but the conversation continues. And as he's enjoying, as, as he's going through this conversation, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says, are you saying this of what you've heard? Or are you saying this because this is what you were convinced of? They, he knows that he's heard these things. He knows that he perhaps has been considering them. You can imagine Pilate, as he's hearing these things, immediately thinking of, what if Rome hear hears about this king of the Jews? What will happen to me? I think Pilate is rather fearful of the king of the Jews. He's convinced that perhaps if anyone was going to bring an assault against Jerusalem, this man would be able to do it. He thinks that this king that they've made reference to is genuinely the king of the Jews. But he progresses on and asks this question. Look at verse 34 and we'll work our way through that. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answers, answered, am I a Jew? Since your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me, what have you done? Well, he's already received the answer for that. The answer is nothing. I've done nothing but proclaim the truth to people who hate the truth. I've done nothing but make clear and make rather perfectly clear, as a matter of fact, who the father they say they serve uh, is, and they hate him. This is the reality of why he's been brought. And when, when Pilate asked this question, am I a Jew, I think we really do see this concept of, of kingdom begin to be birthed into the Gospel of John. The concept is, Pilate is looking at him saying, am I a Jew? And I think genuinely the underlying question is, are you then my king? Is Pilate then under the authority of Christ? Or is, he just the, uh, or is the Jews just under the authority of Christ? Is Jesus' kingdom of the Jews only the kingdom of the Jews? Or does it expand a bit broader than that? The question Pilate desperately needs answered is, are you my king? Now, the place that we can get confused here, because we'll make reference to the fact that Jesus purchased his kingdom with his own blood, but the first thing that we need to understand is Jesus is king. That's it. The concept of king of kings and lord of lords, friends, there is not a single soul that is outside of his sovereign ruling hand. He is king. Perhaps it is that there are souls that are not a part of his kingdom, but he is king. This is vital for us to understand. It dramatically impacts the way that we view the world at large. If Christ is king, that means everything is subject to him. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign rule and control. We do well to remember this. Pilate was under submission to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The reason Pilate had any power at all was because God had set him there. The reason Pilate was currently drawing breath is because the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one he's looking at, is giving him that breath. He is holding it all together. Pilate, yes, he bowed, regardless whether he was recognizing it or not, to the kingship of Christ. He is king. So the question is, am I a Jew? Well, friends, it's rather irrelevant. He is king. He is king first and foremost. But let's press on. Because Jesus then not only makes reference to the fact that, yes, if certainly I am your king. I am the king. 
But then he gets into the concept of the kingdom. And this is something that, my goodness, if there was books and books and books written on the kingdom, we make it a bit more complex than I think it needs to be. There is a kingdom, and Jesus rather clearly defines it right here. In verse 36 and following, it says this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. We'll press on there in a moment. But first, I want to just bring a couple of things to your attention about the kingdom of Christ. Because it is a rather clear statement that the Lord Jesus makes concerning it. First, we must understand that the kingdom is not of this world. Not of this world. Now, that means that it is foreign, but, but it is also present. It is a rather interesting uh, dynamic, if you will, but it does not have its origins here. Instead, I am convinced that it has its origin in the mind of God from eternity past. He brings about this kingdom. As a matter of fact, if we take the epistles that we look forward to later, Peter makes certain that it's the concept of a kingdom of priests unto God, that he brings and ransoms people to himself. But not only do we understand it's an, it's an otherworldly origin, but we also understand it really has no desire for dirt. We think about this kingdom as if its desire is dirt, and its desire is spreading abroad in the way of taking the, and, and, and giving conquest to land. That's not at all what Christ is making reference to. It is not a desire for land. And I think genuinely what Jesus is doing is looking at him and saying, my kingdom is not to assault Rome. My kingdom is not to come after Rome. My kingdom is something different. It is something foreign. It does not threaten Rome's kingdom in the way that he is perceiving. But secondly, Jesus' kingdom is not one with the sword. I love what D.A. Carson says here. He says, it is important to see that Jesus' statement should not be misconstrued as meaning that this kingdom is not active in this world. Friends, the kingdom of God is active in this world. It is simply not active by sword. It is active by something a bit more powerful, if you will. It is a conquest of land through the gospel of Jesus. And that conquest goes into every tribe, tongue, and nation. And friends, the beauty is we know that it conquers. We have already seen the end. We know that every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented. Friends, the gospel will win the earth. It does indeed win the earth. Carson goes on to say, John certainly expects the power of the inbreaking kingdom to affect this world. Elsewhere, he insists that the world is conquered by those who believe in Jesus. But theirs is the sort of struggle and victory that cannot effectively be opposed by armed might. The concept, I think Paul makes it really clear in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He will go on to list the armor of God, of which there is one that is perhaps lovely, very lovely. It's the sword of the Spirit, friends. We wage war. The kingdom is established by the finished work of our priest who brings us into that kingdom and gives us a sword to go to war with, namely the gospel of Jesus. How is the world conquered? How does the kingdom expand? It expands first and foremost from the finished work of Christ and secondly to those whom he has brought into his kingdom by his priesthood. The kingdom will go out. It is certainly otherworldly, but it is not inactive here. As a matter of fact, it is incredibly active. Friends, every time you see a soul Repent and trust Christ. The kingdom expands. The kingdom goes forth. The world is being conquered. Can you consider your own soul for just a moment? You know who you were before you came to saving faith. Perhaps it is that you were even convinced that there is no way that Christ could save you. Friends, the sword of the Spirit, the gospel of Christ, knows no foe it can't defeat. 
it will bring all those whom the Son bled for into that kingdom. And he will keep them. And that kingdom will come to fruition. It is present here and now. And we look forward to it being present all the more in the future. But Jesus presses on. He says this. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. This is verse 37. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? How does this kingdom come to fruition, friends? First and foremost, it comes to fruition based upon the exposition of Christ when he is born. This is the only time that he makes reference to the fact that it is his birth, this grand exposition of the Father that, that, is, the, that is the indication of truth and that the kingdom is born of his exposition of truth. The kingdom, the means of entry, as John has already elaborated on as he considered things like Jesus being the door, the means of entry is only through the perfect, spotless Son of God. He is the means of entry. His exposition of the Father is how it comes to pass but the identifying mark of kingdom people is that they hear and obey the voice of Jesus they hear and obey the voice of Jesus listen to that last phrase it says for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth notice the last phrase everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice friends saints can be identified those who are in the kingdom can be identified by this one question do they obey Christ do they hear his voice? Do they love his voice? Do they long to be obedient unto him? That's the mark of the conquered soul that's been brought into the kingdom of God, a loving, glad obedience to Jesus. And then Pilate ends with this question that I think we do all well to simply sit on for a moment. What is truth? Throughout this entire section, we've seen men looking in the face of our Lord, ignorant. You see Caiaphas, and Annas look at the perfect spotless lamb of God, the high priest, the true and better, blind. They're not there to ask questions, they're there to condemn. Pilate ends this statement that I think is rather profound. What is truth? And I'm convinced that there is a rather quiet yet clear exposition here. Because the only thing that we know is Jesus is looking in to the face of Pilate. And I'm convinced he has made abundantly clear that he is truth, that he is the epitome of truth, that he is the perfect exposition of the Father. The reason that I'm convinced of that is because the next words out of Pilate's mouth is, I find no guilt in him. Friends, what we have in Christ is the faultless Lamb of God, one who has been tried and tried and tried and found not just innocent, but righteous, that at every examination, they see him perfectly clear. He is clean. The only means of condemnation, the only means of condemning him is to present falsehoods. But friends, the beauty is that certainly we see, and we look at this and we think, what a perversion of justice. And we'll see that perhaps more clearly next week. But simultaneously, what a foretaste of grace because, friends, when you stand before God on the day of judgment, when you yourself will be examined, what will our Lord see? The perfect, spotless, righteous Son of God, without any stain, wrinkle, or any such thing. Not because you have merited it, because He has given it unto you.